Legends of the Four Nations is a talk by Lorna Thomas in the Farnham U3A series of theme meetings about national treasures. In this talk, Lorna tells the stories of an Englishwoman, an Irishman, a Scotsman and a Welshman. She looks at each of their legends and leaves us wondering about what is fact and what is myth. A rebel, a saint, a nobleman and a mercenary. I'm sure you've come across the jokes of an Englishman, an Irishman, a Welshman and a Scotsman. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell any of those jokes. I'm absolutely useless at telling jokes. But today, I thought we'd concentrate for a while on the things we have in common. We do have a common Celtic ancestry. And these the four people that I've chosen are historical way back, so not too recent to politics. And I think they've managed to capture the imagination of so many individuals within those countries. So we have a rebel, Boudicca, Queen of the Iceni, a saint, St. Patrick of Ireland, William Wallace, a mercenary, and last of all, a nobleman, Ochen Glendower of Wales. Particularly in recent times, the focus over the last decade or so has been very much about the things that divide us, our differences amongst our four nations, which I think is rather sad. It's been a rather negative look at them. We are different, but that's the thing that's so great about us. Our differences make us who we are. It's built on a common Celtic background. And at some point, because of geography or because of invasions from abroad or various other influences, Cultures and ways of life have developed within those countries. Even the language has developed in an absolutely rich and wonderful way that makes us all different, but adds to this totality of a wonderful tapestry called the United Kingdom, the British Isles. And we are an island race. Even Ireland a long time ago was connected to Scotland. I, I wasn't around at the time, although my son does tend to think I was. We're an island race, and that certainly makes us fairly unique in the world, certainly quirky, and most definitely eccentric. But that's wonderful. There may be a few things that come as a shock to some of you, and maybe just as old hat to others. I don't know. We'll see as the morning goes on. The four people that I've chosen were very real people, but their exploits have become the subject of myth and legend, and I dare say some embellishment, partly because they lived a long time ago. And believe it or believe it not, of course, there wasn't any investigative journalism then. There wasn't any Google to look up. And actually, there were no books. There was the odd tablet left to us by the Romans, of course, but um, a bit difficult to transport around. But yes, no books. So our difficulty when we talk about our four people is that we don't have a lot of 
concrete first-hand evidence to go by. So a lot of this history has been passed on orally, and you all know that if you tell a story, it gets embellished as it's passed on, and it gets changed uh, quite significantly. So as the more I researched this talk, the more it became difficult to know which were the good bits and the bad bits and which were the accurate bits. And I would probably have to say that accuracy is not one of the great things, but then it's one of the joys of history, finding out, challenging and questioning. Even those people who did write about our four national heroes wrote usually sometime afterwards. And one has to question as a historian, how much have they received information orally and then written it down, as you'll see as we, as we go forward. So let's take a look, not just at the individuals then. So this is not going to be a biographic history. It's more a quick trot around the British Isles. And we're going to start off with Boudicca. I'm going to do our four people in chronological history as purely makes it life a lot easier. Now, Boudicca is celebrated today as a national heroine, and she is very much regarded as the embodiment of the struggle for justice and independence. For many, she embodied the Celts' last stand, a bit like Custer's last stand, against the might of the Roman Empire. Of course, it was a very male-oriented society, so why were the Iceni led by a woman? Why and why Boudicca? Boudicca, sometimes referred to as Boadicea, because that's the Romanized version of her name, is believed to have been born in around about AD 30 to an elite family in the south of England. She became queen of the Iceni tribe in approximately 60 to 61 AD after the death of her husband, King Prasitagus. But what had happened to the Iceni to bring them to that situation? And again, perhaps not surprisingly, not much written evidence. And the only two writers that we do have information on are two Roman writers, one Cornelius Tacitus and the other one Cassius Dio. Now, Dio lived and around about, he was born in approximately AD 155, and he lived to 235 AD. So you can already see, you know, he's about 90 to 100 years born after this rebellion that we're going to be looking at, and this woman who lived almost a century earlier. Dio was a Roman historian and senator of, of Greek origin, and he published 80 volumes of history of ancient Rome. They were all written in ancient Greek over a period of 22 years, and Dio's work covers approximately a thousand years of history. Many of the 80 books have survived intact, some of them are in fragments, but they do provide modern scholars with quite a detailed perspective on Roman history. But again, I emphasize his comments that he made about Boudicca were some 80 to 100 years after her death. And the other gentleman is Tacitus. He was a Roman historian and politician. He's widely regarded by modern scholars as one of the greatest Roman historians. And he has a reputation for his brevity and compactness of his Latin prose. 
as well as for his penetrating thoughts on the psychology of power politics. Critically, Tacitus's writing also includes quite a lot about his father-in-law, Agricola. And Agricola was the general responsible for much of the Roman conquest of Britain. So when we quote Tacitus, we do have to remember that he was almost contemporary with Boudicca, but not quite. He would have reached maturity some 50 odd years after the rebellion. But I have to ask, would you want to be too critical of your father-in-law if he was a top Roman general? So some of his language and some of his commentary may be just a tad biased. So I've mentioned the Iceni tribe because Britain at the time when the Romans arrived was really a collection of tribes throughout the country. When Julius Caesar arrived in 55 and again in 54 BC, it was made up very much of these tribal areas, all of Celtic origin, and some of them had come from Gaul, which of course is modern day France and Belgium, and the Gauls, pretty much as they do today, were causing problems in Europe. Like Some things just never change. But the British tribes fought amongst themselves almost as much as they fought the Romans, but they came grouped under this umbrella title of Celtic. And the, ge the geographic area for Celtic tribes is quite wide, and it really stretches from the British Isles right across the southwestern part of Europe. So you could have one of the Caledonian tribes looking at someone from Asia Minor, they would be Celtic in origin, but they wouldn't understand a word they said or, or what even they looked like to a degree. The tribal areas, very broadly speaking, of how the tribes had sorted themselves out by the time of the first century AD, which is when the, the Romans really conquered Britain. But I'll come back to more of that in a moment. They themselves would have recognised themselves by tribal names. And again, they left little in writing, but they do incorporate Celtic culture and Celtic language that goes back to speakings that, that would have been spoken by Scots, by Welsh, by Irish Gaelic, by Manx, Cornish, and even Bretons, because they come from the same area. They, they'd moved across southwestern Europe and crossed over into Britain. Caesar conducted a limited campaign in 54 and 55 BC. He seized much of the land in southeast of Britain, but he discovered to his surprise that the Britons in those areas, and we're talking here about the Atrobates, the Belgae, the Cancini, the Regan, Triavantes, the Catravalloni, just about Catalonia and Triavantes were on the fringes of, of where Caesar actually got to. But they had quite sophisticated technology and they had some considerable wealth in terms of, of mining and other trading resources. And in fact, the tribes of those areas were quite used to trade and trade from the Mediterranean. And in particular, when you move to what is now modern day Cornwall and Devon, the Duratrigs, the Dumnonian, they were trading with the Phoenicians long before the Romans had arrived. Evidence of this has been discovered in recent times in the Snettishan Hoard, which is an Iron Age hoard that was found in modern-day Norfolk, again in Iceni territory. So if you go back 
Norfolk, Suffolk is Iceni territory. That's where the uh, Snettersham hoard was found. And they are some of the most beautiful gold talks and jewellery that have been found from Iron Age Britain. There are some 175 talks, which are like necklaces, and 75 of them were more or less complete, and there were fragments of approximately 100 more. They served as an emblem of importance, and so whoever wore these talks uh, would have been quite an important. The most beautiful is the largest of the set, the Snettersham Gold Talk, which is decorated with eight pieces of rope going round, and each piece of gold rope has eight pieces of gold rope within it. So again, quite sophisticated artistry has gone into that. It's dated to approximately 100 BC, and it does form part of the richest Iron Age treasure that's been found in, in the UK. And in fact, our old friend Dio describes Boudicca as wearing a magnificent gold neck ring which was almost certainly a, a talk pretty much like that. Now, I'd mentioned Julius Caesar. He kind of popped across because he was much more interested in controlling the Gallic tribes of France and Belgium. He was really trying to bring them under control. They were led by a chap called Vercingetrix. Vercingetrix was causing lots of problems for the Romans. So... While Caesar popped across the channel, took a quick look at Britain, thought, mm, yes, OK, potential, but I've got other things on my plate. He turned back to defeating Vercingetrix, in fact, in 52 BC. The Romans considered themselves very much the leaders of the civilised world, and they wanted to bring these barbarian, again, Celtic, Gallic tribes, under their control, and they eventually, as a Caesar defeated Vercingetrix. But other battles called, and Caesar's attention was taken away in the direction of the Battle of Zila, which is near Turkey, and left the British Isles pretty much to themselves. Over the next hundred years or so, the Roman perception of this faraway island called Britain changed, and they realised that Britain had got potential, particularly minerals, also slaves. They'd really decided, yes, we could use a few slaves. We'll capture a few in that uh, northwest corner. And the other thing was that Britain had acquired a reputation for giving shelter to some of the rebels, being a bit of a haven for the Gallic tribes, the refugees, if you like, of Vercingetrix battles. So it was with mixed feelings of, yes, there's something over there we'd like, but they're also sheltering our known enemies, so it's time we went and sorted them out. Emperor Claudius decided in 43 AD, enough was enough, and he decided to lead an invasion, and this time the Romans had come to stay. They arrived with four legions, and in that same year, Emperor Claudius declared South Britain as a province of Rome. 
Some of the British tribes accepted Roman rule, as I said earlier. They had already been trading with Mediterranean tradespeople. So they were familiar with the whole idea of trade and with a Mediterranean style of life. And they quite liked the glassware, the food, the oils. So they were, in a way, quite receptive, shall we say, to Romanization. However, the honeymoon didn't last very long, literally only a matter of weeks, if books are to be believed. And the Romans decided Britain needed to be taken under control. And they decided as a show of strength, they would capture quite a few of the Celtic tribal capitals. And in particular, they captured Colchester, known as Camulodonium, was the former tribal capital of the Triavanti tribe. Now, again, the Triavantes had initially welcomed the Romans on the basis of mutual trade. However, within just six weeks, Claudius arrived in person to accept their surrender. And if folklore is to be believed, he arrived on an elephant. There's not very much left of Roman Camulodonium, but the Romans did build quite swiftly a temple to Claudius. And of course, Roman emperors were regarded as gods. So they built a Roman temple to Claudius in Camulodonium. It was subsequently built on top of by the Normans, who built a Norman castle very quickly after the Norman invasion in 1066 and, and the years that followed. And very swiftly, Camulodonium became the Roman capital in Britain. Back to Boudicca, where does she fit into all this? Well, as I said earlier, her husband Prasitagus had been king of the Iceni, and the Iceni, based in Norfolk and Suffolk, were considered to be under Roman suzerainty which is, in other words, clients of Rome, a nice sort of amicable working relationship, shall we put it that way, with Rome. But when Prasitagus died in approximately 60 AD, he left no male heir. So he left half of his wealth to his two daughters and the other half to the Emperor Nero, trusting that he would thereby win imperial protection for his family. But instead, the Romans annexed his kingdom straight away. They, if he had a will to tear up, they tore it up and completely ignored his wishes and decided to completely take over his kingdom. Boudicca, his wife, objected and made her objections known. She appealed to Rome, but Rome quickly demonstrated that there was no negotiation possible. She was not going to have any say in the matter whatsoever. She was publicly flogged, which was a humiliating thing, but it was which she inherited the leadership of the tribe from Prasitagus, but the Romans flogged her, and worse still, they raped both her daughters. And that was a brutal humiliation. So you've heard the old saying, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. That was Boudicca. And she decided then to don her blue woad and wreak revenge on the Romans. She began enlisting the help of the other anti-Roman tribes who were beginning to see that the Romans were not keeping their promises. And those included her neighbours, the Triavantes. But what they had to remember was, of course, that they were engaging the most powerful army in the world. The Roman army had forged its way across the whole of Europe, 
And here was these little tribes in the British Isles taking on the might of the Roman army. But she became determined to exact her revenge for her family, for her tribe and for the Celtic world. Although it was going to be a difficult battle to fight the Romans, the Celts had two advantages. One, they were quite numerous in number. It was their home territory. They were going to choose to fight on home ground. So there were plenty of them. And the Romans had only brought four legions with them. And the other crucial thing was that they were experts in chariot warfare. Celtic tribal chariots were not the chariots of Ben-Hur. They were quick, they were nimble and especially designed. You have the driver and the warrior inside the framework of the chariot, almost a ledge or almost a kneeling wedge that both could lean against and leave their upper body free one to drive the horse and the other one to fire arrows or throw javelin or use a sword. And so these were very quick, mobile warriors, different to cavalry, using mobile chariots, almost a pre-runner of panzers. They were quick, lightning quick. And Julius Caesar had not seen anything like it. He encountered them when he visited and made comment that the British chariots were something very difficult to deal with. So they did at least have some technology on their side. The Britons used long swords, which were quite heavy, quite long and heavy, but they inflicted really serious wounds. And with a British long sword used by a, a trained warrior, could lob off limbs left, right and centre, really slashing horrible wounds, which not only inflicted physical wounds, but psychologically were quite damaging because they would ride their chariots into the Roman lines or the lines of whoever they were fighting and slash. They would get off the chariot once they'd made some inroads and continue on foot using their, their long swords. The Roman governor of Britain at the time, the provincial Roman governor, was a gentleman called Suetonius Paulinus. And he was certainly not pleased at Boudicca wreaking revenge as she had done. His attention initially was taken away from Boudicca and her rebellion because he had decided that, in fact, he was going to teach the Druids on Mona a lesson because the Romans felt probably quite rightly that the one thing that held all of the Celtic tribes in common was Druidism, a pagan religion at the time. And the Druid center of, of religion was on the island of Mona, which is modern day Anglesey. And although the tribes were very different, they really came together. They were drawn together by the one culture they did have in common, the Druidism. They were really the glue that held the Celts together. And so the Romans believed that the Druids were fueling the insurrections against them. And Suetonius Paulinus made it his business, his quest, to go to Anglesey to destroy them. Meanwhile, Boudicca raised a rebellion and rampaged throughout East Anglia. In conjunction with the Triavantes, the Catravalloni and the Atrobates, they descended on Camulodonium. 
and destroyed it. They burnt it to the ground. They then turned their attention to Verulanium, which was Roman St. Albans, and part of London, Londinium. They also burnt several Roman military posts along the way. Now, Tacitus tells us that Boudicca's rebellion massacred some 70,000 Romans and pro-Roman Britons and cut the Ninth Legion to pieces. That caught the attention of the Romans. The clash, there is now archaeological evidence of the clash between them and because there have been found some evidence that jewellery belonging to legionary families has been discovered wrapped in cloth and hidden down wells by families who must have been absolutely terrified and desperate to get out of the way. So they hastily buried whatever wealthy possessions they had, hoping that they would be able to come back afterwards. Suetonius Paulinus gathered reinforcements. He turned away from Mona, and began marching back towards what we would call the, the Midlands area now. And he amassed an army of some 10,000 men, but they were definitely outnumbered by the Romans. Now, intelligence, tribal intelligence, reached Boudicca that Suetonius Paulinus was on his way. And so she led her men north to meet him. And Tacitus tells us that Boudicca had said, it is not as a woman descended from noble ancestry, but as one of the people that I am avenging lost freedom. Boudicca and her followers met Suetonius Paulinus and his well-drilled Roman troops on Watling Street, and it's thought to be near present-day Fenny Stratford in the Midlands in approximately 61 AD. It was one of the most important battles of British history. Roman rule in Britain was in the balance. Paulinus had chosen the battleground very carefully. He was a skillful tactician. He'd chosen a narrow gorge which protected his flank and a forest protected the rear of his troops. With open plains to the front, Brudica was forced to engage the Romans in a massive frontal charge that funneled them into a tight mass where they could be cut down with javelins. The Celtic chariots were very good on open ground, fast, nimble, flexible, but funneled into this tight space, they didn't have enough room to maneuver. There's also a, a tale, but not necessarily evidence for the fact that the Romans also managed to loosen some of the horses, so the chariots were able to be pulled by the horses. No evidence for that one. Once the Britons were in disarray, Suetonius Paulinus ordered his forces forward and typical Roman wedge-shaped formation. Despite the larger numbers, the Britons were no match for this superior Roman force of discipline, armour, weaponry. As the Britons retreated, their own ring of wagons and belongings to their family actually impeded their escape and they were massacred. The battle marked the end of resistance to Roman rule in Britain. And of course, Roman rule was to last right the way through to approximately 410 AD. The Romans, not surprisingly, suppressed the rebellion harshly and reduced the Iceni to a small tribal community or civitas with its capital, Venta in Icorium, which is present day Caestus of Edmunds near Norwich.
There's no archaeological evidence as to what happened to Boudicca. She just seems to have disappeared. It was alleged that upon the loss of the battle, she either took poison or died of shock or maybe died of illness. But there's no evidence to support this. And thus, I leave you with a final thought of our English heroine, our Iceni heroine. In 2015, archaeologists unearthed a gravestone. Underneath was another gravestone marked Boudicca. They decided to excavate a little further, and the scientific evidence revealed the body of a man. Her death remains an enigma. So that's our Boudicca. Our next one is our saint, St. Patrick. Now, this is bound to upset people because St. Patrick, oh my goodness gracious me, there are so many stories about St. Patrick. He lived from approximately 390 AD to the 17th of March, well noted, um, 460, and known as the patron saint of Ireland. And he's one of Christianity's most well-known figures. He's also known as the Apostle of Ireland. But for all his prevalence in culture, most notably, of course, we celebrate his death on the 17th of March. His life remains a mystery. Again, little evidence. He was living in the 4th, 5th century AD. They didn't write things down. And we have a similar problem with St. Patrick as we do with Boudicca, that's distinct lack of evidence. Sadly, many of the stories associated with him are false. And the more I read about it, the more stories I heard, the more ridiculous in a way they got. But I've just selected a few. And, and I thought, let's look at the fact and fiction of some of the stories that surround St. Patrick, because he is so well known. His family is thought to have been part of the Romano-British aristocracy. So we're following on, in a way, from Boudicca. He was certainly of indigenous Celtic descent, although there is some evidence or some people suggest his family actually came from modern Italy, but that seems fairly flimsy. When Patrick penned two surviving documents attributed to him, he wrote in Latin and he signed his name Patricus, his Romanized British name. His father was a Christian deacon and a decurion. Now, deacon, a religious representative, but a decurion was a Roman cavalry officer in charge of a squadron of cavalrymen in the Roman army. Now, it's suggested that his father may well have taken the role of deacon uh, because of tax incentives. I'm not sure on that one, but again, we have no proof or evidence either way. The Romans hadn't completely left Britain at the time of Patrick's birth. So he grew up in a world where the Moors and Christianity were provincial Roman. His early upbringing was influenced by Romans, thoughts and culture in an area which had never lost its Celtic identity. So although the Romans, they came, they saw, they conquered, they didn't eradicate Celtic identity at all. And particularly in the outlying areas, especially in Wales, where he is believed to have come from. But it meant that Patrick was already familiar with the festivals of the early Christian church. Now, it's said that he was taken into slavery. 
not a lot of evidence about that. But and again, there's not a great deal of evidence that his family were particularly religious. And he himself describes himself as pretty indifferent to religion when he was a youth. He was taken prisoner when he was aged approximately 16 and whisked off to Ireland. Now, again, there's dispute as to where he was actually taken prisoner. He was kept in captivity for approximately six years. And some suggest that he was taken to Mount Sleamish in County Antrim. But it's also said that he was held in County Mayo near Kilra, which is on the West Coast considerable further distance away. I don't know which is right or which is wrong. I honestly can't tell you. During his time though, he worked as a shepherd. He was outdoors and probably fairly isolated. So as a young 16 year old, probably feeling fairly lonely and afraid away from his family. And he may have turned to religion for solace, but he became during that period, a devout Christian. And it's believed that Patrick had a, a dream of converting the Irish people to Christianity during that period of captivity. But Patrick eventually escaped. And according to his own writing, a voice, which he believed to be that of God, spoke to him in a dream telling him that he had to leave Ireland. So Patrick walked some 200 miles, if you believe it's County Mayo, eastwards, to the Irish East Coast and made his way across to mainland Britain. Now, he began religious training and a course of study that lasted 15 years. Again, I can't find a great deal of evidence to suggest where that religious training took place. It seems that it would most likely be in Rome and that that's where he was ordained as a priest and later as bishop. Nothing too concrete about that, though. But he was sent back to Ireland and probably volunteered to go back with a dual mission to minister to Christians already living in Ireland and to begin to convert the remaining Irish. And that contradicts a very popular notion, which is that Patrick introduced Christianity to Ireland. So again, he is a person of total contradiction all the way through. In AD 43, Patrick began preaching in Ireland. Pope Celestine reportedly sent a bishop known as Palladius to the Irish believing in Christ, one indication that some native Irish had already been converted. And one theory is that St. Patrick, the St. Patrick of Irish folklore, is in fact an amalgam of two men, Palladius and the deacon's son, who visited Ireland and had become enslaved and so on. So St. Patrick isn't one man, he's a combination of two. It does make some sort of clarity out of the very misty stories that seem to proliferate about St. Patrick. However, he was very good at PR, viewing it from a modern sense. He incorporated it into the culture of his Christian lessons. He was familiar with the Irish language, and familiar with Irish culture. And so he chose to incorporate those two elements in his teachings. And for example, he used bonfires to celebrate Easter, which the Irish were used to honoring their gods with fire. So having a bonfire was quite a natural thing to do. He also introduced the idea of the Celtic cross. He superimposed a sign of the sun 
or a ring in the center of the cross called a nimbus. It's a powerful Irish symbol and it gave its name to what we know today as the Celtic cross or Celtic cross of Iona. Again, it had its roots in paganism, but he put a Christian spin on it. And certainly the Celtic cross was well known and was familiar adopted by Irish missionaries right through the 9th to the 12th centuries. But of course, they were later. The Irish culture was very much centred around an oral legend and myth. Another one of his stories, and, and this one I do find rather hard to believe, is that he went to the royal centre in Ireland at sunrise, and there he found the king's two daughters. The two girls questioned St. Patrick about God, and they listened attentively as to what he had to say. Patrick recited the Holy Creed to them, and they wished to be baptised, and Patrick baptised them. Upon receiving the, the sacrament, the two girls died and were buried there. Now, that doesn't seem a terribly good outcome or good publicity if you want to convert people to Christianity. But it's one of the stories. The other thing is that, of course, he is known as St. Patrick, but in fact, he was never canonized as a saint. It could be simply due to the fact that in that era in which he lived, in the first millennium, there were no formal canonization process to the Catholic Church, so it may just be an administrative slip-up. But he has never actually been canonized. But that hasn't stopped his popular acclaim. The other legend is, of course, that he ridded Ireland of all snakes. Now, it's true, Ireland does not have snakes, a place I'd like to go to as well as New Zealand. I'm absolutely terrified of snakes. So there aren't any, but that's more due to geography because when the islands separated the water, they weren't able to slither over there. But scholars do believe that the snake story of banishing snakes from Ireland is an allegory for St. Patrick eradicating pagan ideology. And of course, today, he has changed. The way we view St. Patrick's Day has very much changed up to about the 1700s. The commemoration, if you like, of St. Patrick's Day on the 17th of March each year was a fairly solemn and religious one. But as more and more people emigrated from Ireland and wished to circulate and, and, and be with one another, Immigrants, particularly in the United States, began organizing parades. And you know what the Americans are like. They'll have a parade for anything. So the St. Patrick's Day parade that we're all very familiar with, which is a huge celebration and holiday in America, is very much one of an immigrant Irish notion, more than the original commemoration of his death on the 17th of March. But along with that, of course, there has been a lot more paraphernalia as well. And, and he's really woven into Irish folklore, as much of myth and legend, as along with the food, the culture, and all of those things and the things that are celebrated now in modern times. And we down a little Guinness, etc. But who was the real St. Patrick? Was he two men? We don't know. So a myth, a legend, or two people?
William Wallace was one of Scotland's greatest national heroes, legendary figure, and as Joe's already intimated, played by Mel Gibson in the film Braveheart. Much myth and folklore about Wallace, and a lot of it, a little bit like our two predecessors, attributed to people who wrote about it at a different era. And William Wallace was written about by a gentleman called Harry the Minstrel, or Blind Harry. Now, I've got to say that with a title like that, how much is going to be credible? But however, he wrote in the 14th century and he told a romantic tale featuring Wallace. And he alleged, or Blind Harry alleged, that Wallace was seven foot tall. Well, he certainly was of some large constitution. Even his statues look powerful. Walter Bower, who was a noted chronicler, a Scottish canon and abbot of Inchcombe Abbey, states that he was a tall man with the body of a giant, with lengthy flanks, broad in hips, with strong arms and legs, with all his limbs very strong and firm. So he's definitely your film hero, isn't he? He's going to be the man of the moment, the leader, at least physically, if nothing else. Bauer was born in 1385, some 80 years after Wallace's death. And it's clear, however, that his writings captured the imagination of the Scots and many others. So what was the background to this man? Well, very briefly, a little bit of Scottish history to fill you in as to why he was fighting in the first place. King Alexander III of Scotland died. He had ruled a period of peace and economic stability, but that all came to an end when he fell off his horse on the 19th of March, 1286. The heir to the throne was his granddaughter, Margaret, maid of Norway. Now, she made the journey over from Norway, but unfortunately, she herself fell ill and died on Orkney in September 1290. Big problem. Threw the Scottish Council into a real tiswas, and they had to look at contenders, and there were 13 possible contenders for the throne. The most notable uh, that most people will be familiar with was, of course, John Balliol and Robert Bruce, grandfather of the later future King Robert Bruce. Scotland threatened to descend into civil war. The nobility turned to Edward I of England and invited him to arbitrate. Now, Edward I began the process in November 1292, but before he did anything, he insisted that the contenders recognise him as Lord Paramount of Scotland at a feudal court held in the castle at Berwick-on-Tweed. The judgment was given in favour of John Balliol, but there were legal wrangles. The problem is the difference in the lawyers, and you know what it's like. Once lawyers get involved, there are problems, and I hope it's not too many lawyers on Zoom or in the audience. As a simpleton, I've tried to put it fairly simply, the problem lies in the hereditary succession and how it's determined. Primogeniture, which most of us are familiar with the feudal England, etc., the feudal estate stratification, is where the estate of the dead person is given, inherited by the eldest male heir. And other members of the family receive other parts of the estate, but in differing amounts. In complete contrast to proximity of blood, which the estate is distributed 
perstirpers or stirps. And that's the estate being distributed in equal shares. Now, it depends which one of those two you want to follow as to deciding which one of these 13 men should actually inherit the throne of Scotland. That was the problem. John Balliol came up as the one that they decided to have as their king. Edward proceeded to take steps to progressively undermine John Balliol's authority, treating Scotland pretty much as a vassal state. And he thought, ha here we go, they can help me in the war with France. But the Scots very soon became tired of their compromised king, and they directed affairs to other leading members of the Council of Twelve. And in practice, they were a new panel of guardians, which they adopted in Stirling in July 1295. In retaliation for the Scots doing that, Edward I invaded, basically storming the castle at Berwick-on-Tweed and beginning the Scots' War of Independence by defeating the Scots at the Battle of Dunbar on the 12th of April 1296. He took the castle. He forced Balliol to abdicate and exacted homage from thousands, literally thousands, of Scottish leaders. So William Wallace was one who decided to stand up against all this, and his circumstances surrounding his birth seem quite obscure, but he does appear to be descended from a family of gentry. He was born in the 1270s, and tradition has it that he was born in Renfrewshire, certainly of noble birth, but is a little twist. The surname Wallace stems from the old English Wildslick, meaning foreigner or Welshman. So when Wallace's family arrived in Scotland is unknown, but perhaps William Wallace is not as Scottish as we previously thought. I leave that one with you. However, he led several very successful military campaigns, and he was quite a master of military tactics. And the battle for which he is, of course, most famous for is the Battle of Stirling Bridge, which was the 11th of September, 1297. He led the combined forces of Andrew Moray and his own forces to defeat the English, John Wan and Hugh Cressingham at the Battle of Stirling Bridge. And the bridge itself is traditionally regarded as the key to Scotland. So control of it means controlling Scotland. The bridge at that time has sadly gone, but it was about 150 metres away from the current one, a little bit upstream, crosses the water. But the old bridge only allowed two horsemen abreast to cross over at any one time. Wallace and Murray waited for about half the English knights and infantry to cross over before launching their attack. So you can see they cut them off completely. Those on the south side were forced to retreat and those on the north side were trapped. Over 5,000 infantrymen were slaughtered on each side. Following the success of the Battle of Stirling Bridge, Wallace was knighted and he was made guardian of Scotland, which was effectively a role as regent. And acting as regent, he deposed John Balliol as King of Scotland. However, success doesn't always continue. And on the 22nd of July, 1298, Wallace and the Scots suffered a heavy defeat at the hands of the English. They used Welsh bowmen as a tactical decision and Wallace escaped unharmed, but definitely his reputation was badly damaged. 
Now, the surviving evidence points that he may have escaped to France, not quite clear, not quite known, but unfortunately, he was betrayed. He was turned over to the English in 1305 by John de Mentif. He was tried at Westminster Hall and crowned with a circlet of oak, which was traditionally associated with outlaws. He is supposed to have maintained his commitment to Scottish independence because once accused, he is reputed to have said, I could not be a traitor to Edward for I was never his subject. Defiance to the last. He didn't live to see Scottish independence, unfortunately, because after the trial, he was hung, drawn and quartered in August 1305, nine years before the Battle of Bannockburn, which marked the start of Scottish independence, which was formally recognised by the British in the Treaty of Edinburgh in 1328. William Wallace remains a national hero. His exploits passed down through successive generations by tales recounted by the poet Blind Harry, who originally recounted them to the court of King James IV of Scotland. Wallace remains a national treasure. Now, I have to oh, a lot on this. Now, my son is called Owen. And so forgive me if I slip into Owen, but it's Ochen Glendower. Uh, he's the nobleman born in 1359 and died in 1415. On the 16th of September 1400, Glendower instigated a 15-year Welsh rebellion against King Henry IV of England. With the use of guerrilla tactics, the Welsh troops managed to inflict a series of devastating defeats on English troops and captured key castles across Wales. Of course, many of the castles that were built by Edward I, such as Harlech, Conwy, Beaumaris, etc., rapidly gaining control of most of the country. News of the rebellion spread across Europe and Glendower began to receive naval support from Scotland and from Brittany. He also received support from Charles VI of France. Glendower was born in 1359 into a powerful Anglo-Welsh nobility family during a time of relative peace between the tribes of Wales and the English aristocracy. His father, Grifford, was a hereditary prince of Powys, and his mother was Ellen Thomas. It is thought that his father died when Owen was only very young, about 11 years of age, and the young Ochwen was brought up by Sir David Hanmer, who was an Anglo-Welsh judge. And in fact, he went on to be educated as a barrister, as a solicitor at the Inns of Court, but he didn't take up the law. He married Hanmer's daughter, Margaret, in 1383, adding the titles of the Squire of Sincath and Glyndefredog to his portfolio. Glendower saw military service in 1384. He enlisted under Sir Gregory Sace in the Welsh marches in the border counties of England and Wales. And he enlisted in 1385 under the Earl of Arundel fighting for King Richard II by that time. Until the last decade of the 14th century, Glendower was the man of March. Having married into that family, he was the epitome of an assimilated Welshman. 
However, those were troubled years for Richard II, who was eventually deposed by Henry IV, the Lord of Brecon, Monmouth, and other places. The immediate cause of the revolt of Glendower seems to have been the King Henry IV's unwillingness to mediate fairly in a dispute between Owen and one of his Welsh neighbours, Reginald Grey of Runthrun, who was also a marcher lordship. On the 16th of September, 1400, Glendower instigated the Welsh revolt against Henry and a group of Glendower's supporters proclaimed him Prince of Wales at Glendeth Rydw. Beaumaris fell to Glendower in 1403, and by 1404, no less than four military ex expeditions by the English into Wales had been repelled, and Glendower had really consolidated his control over the nation. He was officially crowned Prince of Wales and held a parliament at Messonnet, where he outlined his national programme for Wales, which included plans such as building two national universities, one north and one south, reintroducing traditional Welsh laws of Hawinda and establishing an independent Welsh church. But like many other insurrections, he was successful to start with, but success faded. And despite initial successes, by 1407, superior resources and wealth that the British had at their disposal eventually began to turn the tide and the much larger and better equipped army of the English overwhelmed the Welsh and eventually by 1409 they had reconquered most of Wales. After the final battles of the revolt in 1412, little is known of Glendower. There were flashes of sporadic violence against the, uh, the English, but the bandits, the outlaws, were really very much a, a force that had been expended. Henry IV died in 1413 and was succeeded by the Plantagenet and much more astute Henry V, Henry of Monmouth. He began to offer the Welsh rebels pardons, and Ochen's son, Mared, refused a pardon until 1421, leading some historians to suspect that this was the year in which Ochen Glendower died. One theory is that he ended his life as the family chaplain on his daughter Elise's estate she shared with her husband, Sir Henry Scudamore, who was a sheriff of Herefordshire. However, the rebellion had to a large extent ruined the fragile, comfortable coexistence between the English and the Welsh. A chroniclers reported that Glendower had brought all things to waste and the English king proclaimed havoc in Wales. There was extensive destruction of towns and villages and agricultural land was laid to waste. It was at least a generation before most of the areas caught up in the revolt were returned to any semblance of their working life. There had been great loss of life, economic blockade and a weakening of commerce. And politically too, the Welsh were knocked back where they had been making some progress. Glendower was popularized by Shakespeare and very much emphasizing his Celtic traits. He's portrayed as wild, exotic, magical and a spiritual man. 
And in the 19th century, his life and legacy began to be re-evaluated as the Welsh nation once more began to have a voice in politics. His golden dragon seal was found, which was and is a symbol of national pride and proves that he was a leader of some national importance. He was held in high regard and is now very much a figure of culture in Wales, with statues and monuments, pubs named after him and streets named after him as well. The Welsh are once again proud, although eventually defeated by a larger force, that Glendower himself was never betrayed to his enemies. And he remains the last native Welsh person to hold the title of Prince of Wales. I'll leave you with one thought. What do we actually expect of our heroes? This podcast has been produced by the Mr. T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>